I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History Season 3. My name is Anne Foster and this is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where I most often of the time look at some lesser-known women from history, almost always British history, but we'll see where where this goes. Today, though, I don't know why I was just so vague about that. We are looking at a woman from English history. And her, her story intersects with the overall theme of the season, which is how to lose a queen in nine days, a.k.a. the Jane Grey, Lady Jane Grey scenario. And last time I compared these sort of overlapping stories to like Jasmine Guillory's amazing romance novel series that starts with the wedding date where like the one book is about one character and then the next book is takes a secondary character from that book and makes up the main character. I've been trying to think of other examples in case you don't know those books, which I do recommend, especially in these pandemic times. They're just really cozy and good. But I would say it's sort of like if you watch Skins the British teen show from like 10 years ago where each episode took sort of a different character and then you get a different sense of the situation, how it went on. There's also the classic Japanese film Rashomon. So it's an interesting and different sort of season to do as I've been working on researching to get the scripts together for them. I'm just like, oh, wow, this person overlaps with this. There's so much overlap, but also just everybody has their own interesting story and I'm kind of going through them one at a time ultimately leading to what the fuck was the Lady Jane Grey scenario. So last time we looked at Mary Tudor, 
who is the grandmother of Lady Jane Grey slash the baby sister of Henry VIII. And you may recall, if you just listened to that recently, that so Mary Tudor was married to a man called Charles Brandon. And then she died pretty young, just in her 30s. And today we're looking at the second wife of Charles Brandon, who is Catherine Willoughby, whose technical name is Catherine Willoughby de Arisby. She's a fancy person. And so she became stepmother to Jane Grey's mom. So she's Jane Grey's step-grandmother, effectively. Before we get into the Catherine Willoughby of it all, I just really want to set everybody's expectations just so we know what kind of person we're getting into because it starts off in that sort of way like a lot of stories tend to where it's like she was young and then she had to marry somebody and it was kind of weird but just rest assured this is a story she lives a good long life a good better length than a lot of people did in Tudor era she also did a lot of really cool stuff so you might be like oh the story is sort of depressing but guess what it doesn't stay depressing And just so you know, part of the reason why is because this woman was really, really cool. So this is a quote from a book by Leanda Delisle, which is a great book that I've been relying on a lot for this season. Um, It's a book called The Sisters Who Would Be Queen, Mary Catherine and Lady Jane Grey, colon, a Tudor tragedy. But this is a book that talks about, well, the Lady Jane Grey situation, but also who they're... Jane Grey, her sister, is their mother, like, spoiler, some people will be looking at later in this series. But in Leander Delisle's book, she gets into, she talks about Catherine Willoughby, and she says about her, Blonde, blue-eyed, and charming when she wished to be, Catherine was one of the most remarkable women of her time. Her temper and caustic wit were legendary. One of her contemporaries called her rageous the Lady Suffolk Heats. In the supervisial world of the court, her contemporaries found her unusual directness and honesty both unnerving and attractive. She said what she thought, and what she thought was usually interesting and sometimes shocking. So guess what? She's fucking awesome, and we're going to learn about her. Catherine Willoughby. So the sources I used for this were, again, the Leanda Delisle book, The Sisters Who Would Be Queen, as well as a couple other things. Um, there's a book right by Amy Lysons called The Six Wives and Many Mistresses of Henry VIII. And then also a couple of online things. So I got some information from onthetutortrail.com, from lincolnshirelife.co.uk, and from tutorsociety.com. So let's get into it. Catherine Willoughby. So she was born on March 22nd, 1519. In, I say a lot of place names. If you're listening to this and you're familiar with British place names, I apologize for all my wild pronunciations, but maybe this means something to you. She was born at Parham Old Hall in Suffolk and christened four days later. Her parents, this is interesting. So her father was named William Willoughby. First of all, great name. Um, he was the eight, 11th Baron Willoughby de Arisby and his second wife, Maria de Salinas. Maria de Salinas, as you might guess from her name, was from Spain. She'd come to English court with Catherine of Aragon when Catherine of Aragon first arrived to marry Arthur and then married Henry. So she was one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting slash closest friends. And so after 15 years in England, Maria de Salinas married William. Well, basically, Henry was like, guess what? I like you here. So you get to marry this guy because Henry 
decided who everybody married. And as a wedding present, the couple is given Grimsthorpe Castle in Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire. Grimsthorpe Castle is an amazing name as well. So Henry wanted these two to get married because he himself was an Englishman married to a Spanish woman. And the more English-Spanish co-unions there were in the kingdom, that just kind of strengthened relations between the two countries. He really, really liked Maria. He named one of his, like Henry, the king, named one of his warships the, the Mary Willoughby in her honor. And then um, William Willoughby and Maria de Salinas had a daughter who they named Catherine, almost definitely in honor of Catherine of Aragon, her BFF. She was their only child to survive infancy. Um, they had had two sons as well, named Henry and Francis, but they both died as infants. So William Willoughby, super rich person, and Catherine being his only child, became very rich heiress as a child. So she spent her early childhood in the same home where she was born at Parham, Parham. And her mother was in almost constant attendance on Catherine of Aragon. Like Maria was just off with Catherine all the time. Um, Catherine, so Catherine the Queen, Catherine of Aragon, I'll try and use her full name, Catherine Willoughby, so probably didn't see her mother that often because her mother was off being with Catherine of Aragon. But then when Catherine Willoughby was seven, Lord Willoughby died of illness. It was not, I don't know what illness it was, does it, it for this story doesn't super matter but it was not the sweating sickness because this was too early for sweating sickness i was writing this up while i was also researching sweating sickness so i left myself that super important note that i'm sharing with you right now so catherine being now the only child that he would ever have because he was dead she inherited the barony because he was the baron so she was one of the greatest aka wealthiest heiresses of her generation and this is part of why I think she becomes as cool as she becomes, because she was so rich and powerful. She could get away with stuff that other people didn't have to, other people wouldn't have been able to get away with. And we will see, she has this great privilege in life and she used it in some cool ways. So her inheritance, it got complicated that uh, she had no father because there's a whole thing about like women couldn't have money you have to have a man to have money but her father was dead so like who's okay i'll just read what it says which is there was doubt as to which lands had been settled on the heirs male and which on the heirs general so in 1527 a year after william willoughby died her uncle presumably william's brother christopher willoughby thought that he should have inherited some of the stuff instead of her he accused Maria of withholding documents from him that would have given him various estates. And so it was just a whole big thing in the courts, blah, blah. Effectively at the end of it. So Catherine's wardship. And just to clarify again, this is a podcast telling the stories of women. I did a lot of research, but I didn't research every single detail. So for some reason, presumably because she didn't have a father like she was a ward like someone had to be legally named her guardian i guess because two years after her father died her wardship fell to i guess immediately after the father died her wardship went to the king so effectively she was a ward of the king 
and the king sold her wardship in 1528 to his brother-in-law, Charles Brandon, who you might remember from last episode as the husband of Mary Tudor. So I'm just going to do a little quick math. So Catherine was nine years old when this happened. So it, it meant that she was now a ward of Charles Brandon. Um, Charles was at this point married to Henry's sister, Mary. So, oh, also very importantly, Charles Brandon had to borrow money in order to buy the wardship. Charles Brandon was kind of broke. And so clearly he thought taking on, make, taking Catherine Willoughby as his ward would maybe get him some money was his plan. So he had to borrow money to do it. So just not great planning, Charles Brandon. So by this point, Charles Brandon and Mary Tudor had two little daughters whose names were Francis and Eleanor. And they were close in age to Catherine. I believe Francis was two years younger. So Catherine is nine, Francis is seven, Eleanor is five. So it's kind of like Catherine Willoughby was, her father died, she was taken away from her home, but she got to live with these new girls. So she became sort of like their adopted sister-ish. There's also a son on the scene, Charles Brandon's son with Mary Tudor, was named Henry Brandon. And he was one year older than her. So it's basically these four kids, all similar ages to each other. And everyone assumed the plan here was to eventually marry Catherine Willoughby to Henry Brandon, the little 12-year-old son, because then Charles Brandon would get the money because that would, Catherine would be his daughter-in-law, etc. But here's the thing. Catherine was... I don't know if this is even why... You know what? It's not even why. She was gorgeous. She was spirited. She was really spunky and sounds like a really cool person, but also she was mega rich and fertile, I guess, because by the time that she was like just a couple years after she became the ward, rumors started to spread that Charles Brandon himself might want to marry her, which was probably entirely for money reasons. If he married her, that would solve all of his problems more, maybe easily, more easily than if she was married to his son. I don't know. At this point, Mary Tudor, last week's heroine, who is also so cool, was quite ill. Remember, she got the sweating sickness. So he was maybe sort of, she was still alive, but rumor had it that he wanted to maybe marry his ward. Everyone's just like, this is tasteless. Like even for Tudor times, this is tasteless. Um, But that is what he was doing. So put a pin in that. Meanwhile, Maria, her mother was still a devoted friend to Catherine of Aragon, um, who by now, chronologically, was not doing great. Catherine of Aragon, because Henry was working so hard to get that marriage annulled so he could marry Anne Boleyn. Um, Maria was ordered to leave Catherine's household and not to make any attempt to communicate with her because Henry was sort of punishing Catherine for not agreeing, Catherine of Aragon, for not agreeing to the annulment. So he separated her from her BFF, Maria. We're now in the year 1533. A couple of major things happened. Firstly, Henry VIII broke with Rome and started up the Anglican religion. Uh, number two, Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's sister, died. At her funeral, Catherine Willoughby was one of the chief mourners, because that had been sort of like her adopted mom-ish. Um, Catherine and Maria brought forward palls of gold cloth to the altar. So they had a special role at the funeral, which was a special royal funeral. So it showed that she was had a very high status, Catherine Willoughby. Six weeks after Mary Tudor died, the Spanish ambassador Eustace Chapuis 
uh, reported to Charles, the Spanish king, that, this is a quote, um, on Sunday next, the Duke of Suffolk, a.k.a. Charles Brandon, will be married to the daughter of a Spanish lady named Lady Willoughby. She was promised to the Duke's son, but he is only 10 years old, and although it is not worth writing to your majesty, the novelty of the case made me mention it. So just, yeah, so here's what's happening. Charles Brandon is what, he's like 49 years old, and he decides to marry his 14-year-old ward, Catherine Willoughby, instead of marrying her to his son, so the thing here is what's notable is like a yuch, and b just the fact that this is so weird that the spanish ambassador was like dear the king of spain you know not much happening here in english court uh but you know hey this is like interesting and weird that this uh young half spanish woman is marrying her guardian and she's the ward like this is weird so although there was a lot of um, very young people getting married in oldie times. Although, please note that you had to be 20 years old. A woman had to be 20 years old to get married, unless you were rich, in which case, who cares? But the whole scenario was weird, even to people then, that he had more or less sort of adopted her and then married her, like, what was this? Like, six weeks later? decided to marry his ward who had been who's the same age as his daughters he was 49 she's 14 it's fucked up but stick with me here so why did charles brandon do this well because he was in debt and he was awful so all of his debts were immediately paid off because he had married this very rich person his money problems were solved and he was now the wealthiest landowner in lincolnshire she was also his fourth wife hot tip um he had been married before mary tudor and was a dirtbag and just so you know um on my patreon i do special mini episodes called so this asshole where i just like talk about some grossos from history and charles brandon i have to say is making himself a stunning case for me to do a special episode about how he sucks so they got married and then guess what happened so remember she was going to marry his son Henry, um, his son Henry, died perhaps of a broken heart, some say, because he thought that he was going to get to marry Catherine Willoughby and instead his father did and everyone's just like, this is fucked up. So Catherine Willoughby is now 14 years old and married to a 49-year-old man who was kind of her father, is where we are now right now. But um, her husband is also the king's best friend, so she has good status in life and she's also still wildly rich. So a year after this gross wedding, she gave birth to a son who they named Henry Brandon. Henry VIII was one of the godparents of this child. So like she was in a good situation politically in terms of the king was happy about her. Um, This same month that Catherine Willoughby gave birth to this son and became a teen mom, uh, Catherine of Aragon was still kicking around, um, not doing great health-wise, psychologically-wise. Maria begged permission to go and visit her because that was her best friend and she was doing badly, but she was denied because King Henry VIII just wanted Catherine of Aragon to suffer, basically. On January 5th, 1536, Maria, amazingly, um, best friend Hall of Fame here, forced her way into the castle where Catherine was being kept to see her even after she was refused permission to visit. And then Catherine died in Maria's arms two days later. 
sad. This is where we're, do you know the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? It's sort of like, it takes these two side characters from Hamlet and retells the story of Hamlet from their point of view. It is written by Tom Stoppard and there's a film of it. Anyway, what all the stories this season, especially this one, feel like are kind of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead of the Tudor era because just casually like you know Catherine Maragon dies um and then you know like life progresses um so January 1536 Catherine of Aragon dies that following May um Anne Boleyn was executed so all of this is happening but they're not the main characters we're looking at Catherine Willoughby and what is she up to so at this point um both of Henry's daughters were declared Henry VIII's daughters were declared illegitimate um because he claimed that both of his marriages to Catherine of Aragon as well as to Anne Boleyn were illegitimate. That makes the daughters illegitimate. So that meant that his heirs were now the descendants of his sister, Mary Tudor. So AKA Charles Brandon's previous now dead wife, AKA Catherine Willoughby's sort of adopted mother, AKA the mother of Francis and Eleanor Brandon. So Catherine Willoughby was now sort of tangentially in the royal family as the stepmother of the royal heirs, who were also her same age. Don't worry about it. So simultaneously to this, it's just like an action-packed... 1536 was like the 2020 of the 16th century. So the Pilgrimage of Grace broke out in the north of England. This was where a bunch of people up north were unhappy with Henry VIII for a variety of reasons. Um partially because Henry VIII was closing down all the monasteries and taking all of their jewels, etc. And the Pilgrimage of Grace people also, they thought that Mary I should be the heir. And Charles Brandon, Catherine Willoughby's very old husband, was given one of the people who was given the duty of suppressing this uprising. It took about a year, and finally the whole thing was suppressed. A whole bunch of people were executed for this, and... We're going to talk about that more in some other stories this season, but Catherine Willoughby was busy, you know, probably worrying about her husband and would he be murdered, but she was also busy giving birth to her second son, who was a boy named Charles Brandon. At around this same time, Henry VIII ordered that Charles Brandon permanently position himself up north to make the king's presence known and to try and make there be not so much rebellion all the time. So Catherine... And her two sons moved to Grimsthorpe Castle, which again just feels very like Crimson Peak, gothic-y, to be with her husband. And this is where she lived for, I guess, much of the rest of her life. So Catherine herself, what was she like? Like she was a teenager, she had children, she got married, but like what was she like besides beautiful and rich? She was really smart, really keen on education she's very curious and she's really 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 into the new faith so although her mother was catholic and catherine of aragon was catholic and so catherine might have been earlier on she was really open-minded about this so there's evidence that catherine as a young person might have attended some sermons at hampton court led by hugh latimer who was a radical religious person this is not like theology podcast so i'll just say effectively 
that Henry VIII broke off with Rome for a variety of reasons, one of which was because he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon. And so his new religion, Anglicanism, was really um, in many ways similar to Catholicism, except just no pope. So there was still like relics and there's still saints and things. And there was people who wanted um, even more different um, religion. So the reformed faith. So this is the term evangelical is used there. And it means very different thing in 16th century England as it does in 2020 North America. But it meant people who really wanted church to be more a personal thing for people where they would have their own relationship with God instead of having to go through priests and things. And they wanted there to be less frippery. Is that a word? Less, you know, decorations and like jewels and money and just much a much more personal sort of radical thing. And that is what Catherine Willoughby was into. So she has some surviving letters that show that she had a questioning and inquiring attitude, although she couldn't express her um, belief in this new reformed religion until after her mother had died because her Spanish Catholic, Catholic mother, who was best friends with Catherine of Aragon, would probably not want her to do that. So, but after her mother, so Maria died in 1539. After her death, Catherine had the walls of the family chapel whitewashed. So to make it be more reformed religion looking, like less fancy stuff everywhere. She removed the gilded saints from their little podiums. And then she invited Hugh Latimer, this famous radical, and other Protestants to preach to her friends and neighbors. So she just was like all in at this point. So... Again, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of it all. By this point, Henry VIII was just like rocketing through various wives. So he had been married and then widowed by Jane Seymour, who had given birth to a son called Edward, who is now his heir ahead of the ahead of Francis, Catherine's stepdaughter. Henry VIII married Anne of Cleves. This did not go well, as we all know. But Catherine and Charles Brandon were among the entourage that greeted Anne of Cleves when she arrived in England. And then two years later, because Charles Brandon was still BFFs with the king and Catherine was right there with him. And so they were just, you know, this power socialite sort of couple. So two years later, they helped arrange a royal progress, like a little tour around the country for the king and his next wife, Catherine Howard. This was, fun fact, the same progress that became notorious because that Sir Catherine Howard was perhaps having adulterous trysts with her lover. Uh, Charles Brandon died in 1545, good riddance, because now Catherine Willoughby gets to be her own true self, even more so. So the two of them have been married for 11 years, from the time she was 14 to 25, or 26. So she was now 26, super rich, single woman, two sons. Um, at some point around here, the king of Poland, Sigismund II, apparently sought Catherine's hand in marriage because he heard that she was great and also really rich. But she said no, because that was not what she wanted to do. And she was rich and was able to live her own life at this point. So she was considered by the foreign ambassadors to be some, okay, so we've got various foreign ambassadors. We've got various different countries. And countries like Spain, for instance, where which was a Catholic country, they considered Catherine Willoughby to be one of the greatest heretics in the kingdom. I mean, she was like sponsoring Protestant sermons, etc. By this point, 
uh, Henry VIII has married his sixth wife, Catherine Parr, who is also a big fan of the Reformed religion. And Catherine Parr and Catherine Willoughby became actually great friends. And apparently Catherine Willoughby was a big influence on Catherine Parr for her own religious beliefs. Uh, Catherine, one of her enemies, was also a man named Bishop Stephen Gardiner, who was the intellectual leader of religious conservatism and the sort of guy who would give sermons being like, women should not say so much, they should be quiet. Women named Catherine Willoughby should mind their own business. Like, he was subtweeting her via sermon constantly. But Catherine Willoughby, being an awesome person, she named her pet spaniel, like her dog, Gardiner, um, which provoked much amusement when she called her dog Gardiner in front of other people. Several years later, Gardner wound up in prison for various reasons, and Catherine Willoughby apparently is quoted as saying, it was Mary with the lambs when the wolf was shut up. So she had enemies, people knew who she liked and who she didn't like, but she was again like rich and untouchable. So she was noted for her wit, her sharp tongue, and her devotion to learning, as well as for being an outspoken advocate of the English Reformation. In 1546, Catherine Parr's, well, the whole reformed religion thing was just getting more and more controversial, partially because there's all these women who were practicing this religion and it was um, threatening the power base of people who didn't support this religion. At one point, Henry VIII ordered Catherine Parr to be arrested, possibly as a heretic, but she, Catherine Parr, managed to convince him to not arrest her. And we'll talk about that another week on this podcast. Catherine Willoughby, meanwhile, would not stop. Um, She founded a grammar school on some of the land that she had acquired on the understanding that the Protestant schoolmaster would be chosen by herself and her heirs. So she was like opening schools, hosting ministers, just like really, really passionate about wanting to spread this faith that was a bit more, uh, a bit less, I don't know, caste based, where it's like people could have their own relationship with God. And he didn't need to be super rich to do it and borderline heresy. But this was just like what she was doing and no one seemed to want to stop her. So this, this is what I mean. Like the story goes into some interesting and unexpected places. Had she died earlier, then she wouldn't have done all this cool stuff, but she lived long enough to do a bunch of stuff. Just wait. So uh, there were rumors actually that Henry VIII perhaps wanted to annul his marriage to Catherine Parr and marry Catherine Willoughby instead because she was so smart and clever and Henry VIII liked shiny new women who he wasn't already married to, but they did not. I mean, he obviously didn't marry for some of the time. He's still married to Catherine Parr when he died. After Henry VIII died, Catherine Willoughby helped fund the publication of Catherine Parr's book. So Catherine Parr, the queen, I'm sorry, there's so many Catherines in this story. Catherine Parr, the queen, wrote a book called The Lamentation of a Sinner, which was the first book in the English language to be published by a woman using her own name. And it was published with the help, financial help of Catherine Willoughby, who is now just like patron of the arts, apparently. She is the Dolly Parton of her time. Um, Catherine Willoughby also became a patron of John Day, England's leading religious publisher. He published various books with Catherine Willoughby's Coat of Arms from 1548 onwards. Catherine Willoughby also helped establish churches for foreign Protestants, principally Dutch people who are fleeing religious persecution on continental Europe. So she's like helping refugees now too. Like her faith is like very evident in what she is doing. 
So meanwhile, her bestie, Catherine Parr, so now widowed from the king, she married again to a man named Thomas Seymour. Catherine Parr gave birth to a daughter and died several days later of childbirth-related reasons. Months later, Thomas Seymour was arrested, tried, and executed for treason. Again, this is a story we'll get into later. I know it's weird to be glossing over these, like, wild plot twists, but we're focusing on Catherine Willoughby. And the point of all of this is to say that Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour had a daughter named Mary who was left an orphan at age seven months, and Catherine Willoughby was appointed guardian of this little baby. Catherine Willoughby, not a huge fan of this arrangement. She, for some reason, maybe she was spending all her money opening schools and sponsoring books. She wasn't able to support the young infant, so she, there's some letters that exist about her asking for funds and saying, like, I really can't take care of this baby. Like, can we not have me do this anymore? Eventually, the queen's daughter, baby Mary, seems to disappear from history, so presumably she died in childhood, although there's a bunch of not a bunch, but at least some historical fiction novels imagining what if she didn't die. And Anyway, but for Catherine Willoughby, that whole thing is done. One biographer, uh, Linda Porter, suggests that baby Mary might have died and was buried near Grimsthorpe, where Catherine Willoughby lived. So Catherine Willoughby is just sort of like picking up children. There's other instances where she ends up becoming the custodian of some other abandoned girls, but we'll get to that in a bit. So, tragically, Catherine Willoughby's sons, so in 1551, her sons who were aged 14 and 16 were off at Cambridge being students, and they both died of the sweating sickness. So with them, the title Duke of Suffolk uh, passed on to Catherine's stepdaughter, Francis's husband, Henry Gray. So remember, she has the two stepdaughters, Frances and Eleanor, who she sort of grew up with and are very close in age to her. So Frances is now married to Henry Gray. Catherine and Frances seem to have kept on a good relationship with each other after they got over the weirdness of being sisters. And then one of them becomes the other one's stepmother. Catherine spent Christmas at Frances's home in 1551. And so it was time for her to regroup, like... Her husband is dead. Her best friend is dead. She had this little baby who she was watching. Now the baby's dead. Her sons are dead. It's just like, what's what's she going to do for the next act of her life? And this is where the story gets, takes some unexpected twists. So she turned to her faith. Um, this was a severe test to her faith, obviously. All of this death and misfortune. And as she built her new life, she employed Hugh Latimer as her chaplain of her church. So, which brings us up to 1553. So three, lots of things happened, but three major things happened that affected her life. Firstly, her step-granddaughter, Lady Jane Grey, so that's Francis's daughter, became queen for nine days. Um, Obviously, we'll talk about that later. Um, The second thing is that Queen Mary I, Henry VIII's daughter, became queen, brought back Catholicism, started persecuting Protestants and people who believed in the Reformed religion. And the third thing is that Catherine Willoughby got married again, but this time it was a love marriage. So her new husband was named Richard Bertie. He was three years older than her. So at this point, she's 34 and he's 37. And 
So she was the super rich heiress who, you know, the King of Poland had wanted to marry, etc. Henry VIII had wanted to marry, but she chose to marry Richard Bertie, who had worked for her as her master of the horse and gentleman usher. So he was a gentleman, but not at all at her same social standing, which is how you know it was a love match. So they shared religious beliefs. She didn't change her last name. She continued to be known as Catherine Willoughby. She tried to get her husband's name changed to Lord Willoughby de Arisby, but nobody agreed to that. And then one year later, she gave birth to a daughter who she named Susan, which just side note, I am delighted that she named her daughter Susan because everybody in every story is named Catherine, Jane, or Anne. And Susan is just a nice change of pace. Susan Bertie. So, but because she was giving birth to Susan, she was away from royal court during the whole Jane Grey being executed situation, which probably luckily for her, so she wouldn't get all caught up in that. And then the whole Mary being Bloody Mary, etc., um, persecuting Protestants, it just kind of got to be sort of a risky thing to be a Protestant person in England at this time. So Catherine and her new husband, Richard, along with some other exiles, decided to just like peace out of England for a while. So they went over to Europe. And what we know about their time in Europe comes from a person named John Fox, who is, he's a martyrologist. So I'm not, I don't know. He's somebody who just like wrote very flattering things about Protestants at this time. So some of what he says is probably true, but some of it might be overblown, but who knows? So John Fox describes Catherine and Richard taking a long walk through the February snows to reach the relative safety of in Cleves, um, where Anne of Cleves is from. Then they went up the Rhine to Weinheim, where they were allowed to settle in Windeck Castle. So throughout this whole journey, they were pursued by Queen Mary's agents. So it was this daring escape. But then help arrived through a person named John Alasco, who had known Catherine in England and had contacts with the King of Poland. Remember the King of Poland? So Sigismund II, who had wanted to marry her before. Um, still a big fan, apparently. So they went and met up with Sigismund, who appointed them as administrators in Lithuania. I do not know what that means, but this is all really exciting. So during this whole era of exile, Catherine Willoughby had another son whose name was, if you think Susan was exciting, Peregrine. So her new son is called Peregrine Bertie. And he was apparently named Peregrine after their peregrinations, which is a word I had to look up, but it basically means a challenging journey. So, Peregrine. So she sees two, she has this whole new life. New husband, new kids. Peregrine was born in Cleves in 1555, the same year that Catherine's old chaplain, Hugh Latimer, was burned at the stake for being Protestant. So, good move leaving England, Bertie family. So, the family's adventures on the continent were told in popular Elizabethan ballads. So there was a ballad called The Rare and Most Excellent History of Catherine Willoughby's Calamity. And then there was a play by Thomas Drew called The Life of Catherine Willoughby, published in 1624. Um, There's also a play called The English Fugitives by William Houghton, which might have been about them as well. And then, as if that wasn't enough, Catherine's 
So the fact that she married one of her servants and then was persecuted may have inspired some of the plot twists in John Webster's play, uh, The Duchess of Malphi. So, I mean, this is just like an adventure. This is like, where's the movie of this? After, so Queen Mary died in 1558, and the new queen became Elizabeth I, who is cool with Protestants. So they came back to England. So Catherine Willoughby did not serve Queen Elizabeth directly, but she used her position back up north at Grimsthorpe Castle to promote religious reform and keep, like, she was um, consistent in her beliefs and her actions. Richard Bertie returned so he went back to to royal court and he was actually appointed as member of parliament for their area for the northern area of lincolnshire lincolnshire but turns out they went back to england but it was not like protestant utopia which is what they had been kind of hoping because elizabeth the first was very political and she knew like probably not the time to choose like a really strict religion she wanted a more inclusive religion you know like protestant but still with like some fancy jewels and things and then um peregrine grows up and he wants to marry somebody named he wants to marry the earl of oxford's sister mary um and this led to some further drama so the bertie family catherine and her husband did not like the earl of oxford Okay, so Peregrine wanted to marry a person named Mary. Mary's family did not like the Bertie family. So Mary, the Earl of Oxford's sister, showed Queen Elizabeth some letters that Catherine had written which seemed to criticize the royals in general. And this sort of let... So this is just like, I have to say, I approve of Mary's wild um, scheming here of just being like, you're not going to let me marry your your son? Well, then I'm going to just like disgrace you and maybe have you killed. Like it's a bold move on the part of Mary, the sister of the Earl of Oxford. So it seemed like Catherine was going to maybe be arrested and perhaps executed, but she still had the Catherine Willoughby fan club is still around. People still liked her. So Robert Dudley, the Queen's boyfriend, and William Cecil, the Queen's spy master, liked her or could see her potential use, and they smoothed everything over. And eventually Peregrine did marry Mary, and he became a soldier who was well-renowned. Catherine just kept living at Grimsthorpe Castle, um, and she intensified her efforts to promote the Protestant religion in that county and up in the north. Um, There's a historian slash clergyman named John Stripe, who noted that the Reformed faith was greatly advanced by the helping forwardness of that devout woman of God, Catherine Willoughby. Um, she died age 61 on September 19th, 1580 at Grimsthorpe Castle. Her husband, her second husband, Richard Bertie, died two years later, and he's buried beside her in her tomb at St. James's Church at Spilsby. So, I mean, okay, 61 is quite young to die, but compared to the other people we're looking at this season, it's actually really great. So it's time now to score Catherine Willoughby on our Scandalicious Scale. So there's four categories, as I'm sure you all know, where 
we sort of compare the women like i'm not saying who's better than who i'm just saying like given these four categories who scores higher than who so the first the well just so you know kind of where we're looking at at present the highest score on the scale is joanne of naples from season two with a 33 um last week mary tudor got a 27.5 and so we'll just see where Catherine willoughby lands so the first the first category is scandaliciousness, which is just like how juicy are the scandals in which she was involved. So the first major scandal of her life would be the weirdness of being married to her guardian when she was 14. But that's not like the thing with scandaliciousness. It's also like you need to I'm squirking them based on like things they did, not things that like they couldn't control. So I, I wouldn't really necessarily give her points for that as a scandal. And we're going to be getting into a lot of religious stuff this season. So I feel like I need to make accommodations where if someone's scandal is heresy, like if you get killed for that, like that was scandalous in that time. So the fact that she was this um, super involved person with a reformed religion to the point that she like fled um, while her compatriots are being killed, like that's, I'm going to give her. I'm going to give her a six for scandaliciousness, I think, because in that time and place, that was pretty scandalous. Um, for scheminess, I love her for scheminess because we don't know exactly what was going through her head, but the fact that she was like, we need to get the fuck out of England right now. We need to like run along in the winter and then like, ooh, you know who might help us? The King of Poland. He used to have a crush on me. Good. Again, like not a lot. I don't know. Like, that's sort of one scheme. But her other schemes were, like, to whitewash the church and make it be Protestant and, like, to open a school. Like, she did stuff. So in terms of just, like, a person who did stuff, she did a lot of stuff. Um, I'm going to give her a seven for scheminess, I think. Significance is a tricky one because it's easy to see significance if somebody is, like, the queen or, like, their child becomes the queen or whatever her significance here is sort of her religious views affected a lot of people um she might have been one of the people who helped Catherine Parr become as sort of into the reformed faith as she was her influence probably also paved the way for uh, Lady Jane Grey who's also super into the reformed faith like I think she her significance is like a a hundred little tiny significances that all add up to being quite significant but in this not concrete way so that's tricky i'm going to give her a seven for significance i think as well the final category is the sexism bonus which is where we add some more points based on how much bullshit they had to put up with vis-a-vis the patriarchy and honestly like she was married at age 14 to a man who was her guardian had a child at age 15 which sucks and is pretty awful. But in the pantheon of like this podcast and what we're looking at, sort of like, that's like your basic level five sexism, just being a young woman and you can't decide who you marry. It's like everyone on this list kind of had that. And then she went on because she was rich, um, had good connections and was beautiful. She's able to do a lot of stuff. So she didn't face as much sexist bullshit as some other poorer people with less privilege so i'm gonna stick her not sticker i'm gonna give her the five just no one's gonna go less than five in sexism because that is the world in which they and we lived but 
not much more than that. So that's, so this gets her 25. So, I mean, again, like a fair score, it has to be because I'm the one who just gave it to her. So that does land her towards the bottom of this list. But the thing is like, she kind of, she lived to be 61, which frankly, I feel is quite a bit older than most of the other people we've looked at thus far. Um, and she had a lot of influence, but it was all in all these sort of like little subtle ways, which is harder, like on this scale to measure. Where is she in my heart? Number one in my heart right now, but where is she on this scale? Fourth from the bottom. That's Catherine Willoughby. The Duchess of Suffolk, who is a person that I did not know much about at all, except I was researching other people. And then I, her story came up and I was like, wait, how much older was she than her stepdaughter? I was like, wait, how, wait. And then Peregrine Birdie, I was just like, oh, I need to read about her. And then I did. And I'm glad I did. And I'm glad I got to tell you all about her. So this is season three of Vulgar History Podcast, How to Lose a Queen in Nine Days. It's going to be a podcast season with nine episodes. By the end of it, all these overlapping stories. Hopefully we will all understand the Lady Jane Grey scenario a little bit better. Just a couple links to tell you about. So I mentioned at the top so what my sources were. Those are going to also be in the show notes too. But you can also find the books that I've been looking at for research for all the seasons at bookshop.org slash lists slash vulgar history recommends that link will be in the show notes we have a merch store where i'm going to be putting merch in themed to this season including um fabric face masks if you want a, a face mask with like a cute elizabethan pattern on it if you want sort of like artemisia gentileschi a painting on a face mask. Anyway, you can find that all at um, teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history. Um, I have a Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash Writer. And if you join the Patreon, that's how you get access to the So This Asshole mini episodes where I just talk about men who are awful and other, other treats on the Patreon. And my dream is one day to get enough money through the Patreon that I can get some, I can hire an editor for this podcast. That's my dream. Um, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, we're at Vulgar History Pod, Twitter, Vulgar History. My name is Ann Foster. It's so great. It's so great to be back here talking to all of you again. And I will talk to you again soon for the next episode of this season. Masks on, tits out. See you next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing 
to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.